Thank you, Zach and John. Please stand up as we prepare to read from God's Word this morning. If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 21 and 22. Again, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. If you do not have a Bible, there's a Bible in your pew, and uh, you can turn to page 553 as we prepare to read from God's Word this morning. Today, Pastor Bruce continues his series in the Ten Commandments and focusing on the Sixth Commandment today. The Murderer and Me. So follow along again as I read from Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Bow your heads properly, please, this morning. Heavenly Father, your commandments are given to us to guide us in our lives, Father, to instruct us. It's for our own good that you give us these commandments, Father. I thank you how you love us and you care for us. And you really always do know best, Father. I thank you for that. I I ask, Father, that you would help us to understand from today's message that you would speak through Pastor Bruce so that we would have that right heart attitude in listening to you and applying what you have, that we, Father, ultimately would leave this morning asking you to have us in a right relationship with you, It only comes through your Son, Jesus Christ, who we have all the faith and hope and trust in, Father. We thank you for this. Be with Pastor Bruce as he speaks this morning. Thank you for this message in your name. Amen. Well, how are you doing in the memorization of the Ten Commandments? Anybody think they can recite all ten? Yeah, shaky a little bit. Hopefully you're keeping up with it and you're memorizing the Ten Commandments. Uh, you know, don't forget each week we got the, uh, the scripture cards and the bulletin there for you. And I uh, appreciate Chris. Every week he sends out an email uh, that has the card on there as well. So if you, you would rather, you know, take the email and uh, memorize that too, it would be awesome. And you're like, well, I don't get the email. Well, that's probably because we don't have your email address. And so if you'd like to receive that, just uh, contact the church office and contact Kim and she'll take your email and we'll get you in the system there. And, uh, and so be diligent in that. Now, I must say, if you're having a little trouble, perhaps a different version will help. Uh, maybe you need to memorize the Tennessee version of the Ten Commandments. You know what the Tennessee version of the Ten Well, here they are. Uh, the people in Tennessee have trouble with all those shalls and shall nots. And so they translated Ten Commandments into their everyday common language. Like, number one, just one God. That's pretty good. I like that. Uh, Number two, put nothing before God. All right. Number three, watch your mouth. Okay. Number four, get yourself to Sunday meeting. That's commandment number four. Uh, Number five, which is what we looked at last Sunday, honor your ma and pa. And that's pretty good, too. Number six, no killing. And In fact, that's what we'll see today. And then number seven, no fooling around with another feller's gal. That's pretty good. And then number eight, don't take what ain't yours. Number nine, no telling tales or gossiping. And then number ten, don't be hankering for your buddy's stuff. 
And so we'll examine the rest of those. We're halfway done to, uh, uh, already, and we're beginning the latter half of the Ten Commandments today. And so as we continue in our series on the Ten Commandments, here's a question I want us to begin with. Which commandments do you think causes the most controversy in our culture today? Out of all the Ten Commandments, which do you think causes the most controversy? Which commandment do people have the most problem with? Which are they offended by or, or reject the most? Whatever, however you want to frame it. Well, I would submit to you that it's, it's basically almost all of them. Think about it. People strongly object to the first commandment, which rules out all other gods. People don't really see the point of the fourth commandment, which makes worship on the Lord's day a priority. And people ignore the third commandment just outright. I mean, what's the big deal about taking the Lord's name in vain? And we could go through all the commandments in that way. But the sixth commandment, I would suggest, is one of just about the only commandment everyone still seems to accept. And yet, as we're going to find out this morning, it's one of the most violated commandments today. We look at the Sixth Commandment. It's short, it's simple. You shall not murder. If you have an older version, Bible, King James says kill. You shall not kill, you shall not murder. And we're like, oh yeah, everybody accepts that. Most people agree that getting angry, pulling a gun, and shooting someone in cold blood is just flat out wrong. I mean, who would argue that? Murder is so contrary to the law of nature that, get this, every culture has some sort of law against murder. Even in America, homicide is still a criminal act. However, when we begin to fully understand the implications of the Sixth Commandment, we find that no commandment is more blatantly or brutally violated. We like to think of America This great country we live in, we like to think of it as as being civilized. But we are living in an angry, violent country. We're living in angry, violent times. And murder, in all its forms, is all around us. We have become what the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 3, verses 15 and 17, where he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is such a callous disregard for human life that we are now living in what Pope John Paul II called a culture of death. I think he was right on. A culture of death. Think about it. Death is everywhere around us. There's death in the city. Not just Kansas City. You go to any major metropolis and there's death in the city where homicides are usually the leading story on the news. There is death in the schools. It's not uncommon now to hear shootings from Kentucky to Columbine to the College of Virginia Tech. There is death on the streets where people are killed by drunk drivers and now road rage. There is death on the screen where the average American child will see more than 80,000 murders on TV, movies, and video games by the age of 18. There is death even in the home, where you have parents killing children, either intentionally or by neglect, or kids rising up to kill their own parents, or siblings and family members killing one another. 
There is death everywhere. We are living in a culture of death. So where do we turn? Where does all this violence come from? Well, the simple short answer is it comes from our evil hearts that have turned away from God. And, of course, that leaves us with the question, then where should we turn now? Where do we turn now? And the answer is back to God. Back to his blueprint for behavior in the sixth commandment specifically. But here's our problem. And it's my problem as much as it is your problem. It's all of our problem. And that is we think this commandment doesn't apply to me. I've never killed anybody. I'm no murderer. But by that, we simply mean we haven't taken a gun and shot somebody in cold blood. Or we've never taken a knife and plunged it into somebody's heart. See, we haven't literally killed anyone, so we think this commandment doesn't apply to us. But as we're going to see this morning, the sixth commandment is a lot harder to keep than it seems at first. In fact, what we're going to see is that there's the murderer in me. So let's look at this this morning, the sixth commandment. Now let me just say up front from the beginning before we dive into this commandment. This commandment is so packed full. And there's no way we can do uh, an in-depth study of everything that this commandment talks about. So all we're going to do this morning is do an overview on some of these issues. Because some of these things we're going to talk about or mention this morning are sermons in and of themselves. And so just understand, this is an overview. It's not intended to answer every single question we may have about what this commandment raises. But let's look at it. Two main points this morning. Number one, God authorizes the sixth commandment by forbidding murder. The sixth commandment is one of the shortest commandments that God gave to us. It's just two words in the original Hebrew language. Literally, the two words mean no killing. No killing or no murder. But what kind of killing does the Bible have in mind? Did God have in mind? Well, the Hebrew language has at least eight different words for this word killing. And the one that's used here in the Sixth Commandment has been chosen by God very carefully. This Hebrew word for killing is never used within the legal system of the, of, for the nation of Israel. It's never used in the military or even for the hunting of killing of animals. What the Sixth Commandment forbids is not so much not killing in the sense of absolutely no killing whatsoever, as some people will take this commandment and even apply it to the animal kingdom, which is ridiculous, what this commandment forbids is the pro- it prohibits the unauthorized and unlawful killing of an innocent human being. It prohibits the unauthorized and unlawful killing of an innocent human being. No murder is the idea, and it includes any form of wrongful death. And so what God forbids here is the unjust taking of an innocent human life. According to one commentary, he applies this commandment to, and I quote, to murder in cold blood, manslaughter with passionate rage, and negligent homicide resulting from recklessness or carelessness. For example of the negligent homicide, you could go to Deuteronomy 22 verse 8, 
And there God tells the people, when you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone should fall from your roof. So God's law, in other words, he comes to the people of Israel, as he does even to us now, and he basically condemns the shedding of innocent blood. But why? Now, there's obvious reasons we think in our own mind why God forbids the taking of innocent blood. But why? Why is murder forbidden? Especially when it's all around us today. Well, there's one primary reason, actually two, that we're going to see here. You can go to Genesis chapter 127, and you find there that when God created Adam and Eve, it tells us that God made every human being in whose, whose image? God's image. This is what makes life so precious and life so sacred, is that we are created in the image of God. Listen, that sets us apart from the animal kingdom. We are distinct from animals. We have a soul where animals do not. In other words, we are the divine image bearers of God himself. Now, albeit since the fall of Adam and Eve, since sin has entered in, that image has been marred, twisted. And in some people, it's very hard to see. You're like, yeah, really? Image of God in that part? No way. All right? But, folks, that's all of us. Okay? That's why we need to be redeemed. That's why uh, God's grace through his son needs to come into our lives and, and create a new creation within us. But we're all created in the image of God. That's what makes life sacred and precious. God put his stamp on every person the way a great artist signs his name to a work of art. Therefore, to damage a life is to deface one of God's masterpieces. So the sixth commandment, notice this, not only protects the sanctity of life, but it also preserves the sovereignty of God over life and death. So we have two issues here that the Sixth Commandment prohibits or preserves. It, pro, it protects, if you will, the sanctity of life because we're made in the image of God, but it also preserves the sovereignty of God over life and death. You see, as the Creator, God alone is the author over life and death. He is the sustainer of life, and He's the taker of life. And since God is the giver of life, it is also his prerogative to take it and to do so at his own time in his own way. Job reminds us of this in Job 14.5 when he says, man's days are determined. Now, who determines our days? You think it's you? Do I? No way. Our days are determined by God as the creator. And then Job goes on, he says, you have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. And so what we must understand is the sovereignty of God more than anything else is always at stake in the matters of life and death. Now, but you can't talk about the sovereignty of God apart from the glory of God. And so what's also at stake in the sixth commandment is God's glory. You see, God has given us life and breath so that we might, what? Live for him. Live for his glory. 
We are to use our lives to bring God glory. Psalm 118, 17 says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. You see, our lives are not given for our own sake. We're not here on this earth to build our own little kingdoms and to just go around and make ourselves happy and then die. That's not our purpose here. That's not why God created us. We are given life so that we can bring glory to God. And for this reason, it may not be taken unlawfully. One theologian has observed, and I quote, a person may not be killed for this reason, that he is either actually or potentially someone who declares God's praises, and therefore anybody who kills another person thereby robs God. When we take a life, what are we robbing God of? We're robbing God of his glory. Because life was created to bring him glory. And you've taken, through murder, the very life that now brings him glory or should. And so why we like to think that murder, at the heart of it, the real issue is the sanctity of life that should be preserved, and it should. Folks, listen, that's simply secondary to the sovereignty and glory of God that is the priority. That's why God says first and foremost, you shall not murder. You see, the commandments are always about God, him first, and not us. But that's life in general, isn't it? We just haven't caught up with that yet. You see, behind the sixth commandment lies the authority and sovereignty of God. And how do most people respond to God's authority? How do most people respond to his sovereignty? Even us as believers, you know, we even know God has the right to be the authority in his sovereignty rules. And yet, how do we want to respond to it? There are times in our own heart we reject the authority of his word. We reject or refuse to submit to his sovereignty. Especially when God chooses to take life and authorizes the lawful taking of life. So what we do, we begin to find ways to circumvent his authority, circumvent his sovereignty so that we can be in control of our own lives and even in control of somebody else's life. So we take life and death into our own hands in violation of the sixth commandment. But all this brings us to a question then that is somewhat difficult to answer. And I'll just be upfront with you. I don't have all the answers to this question. Some of you may perhaps have already begun to think about this question. And the question is, well, what about all the God-authorized killing in the Bible? You ever read the Old Testament? I mean, the Old Testament is one of the bloodiest books you'll ever read. I mean, we have to admit that God is doing a great deal of killing in the Bible. There's killing by execution. There's killing by war. And let me tell you, no one is spared. Not even children, not women, no civilians even. I mean, what's up with that? Among the many descriptions of God in the Old Testament, we find that he is a God of war. And thus, there is authorized 
killing by God. In fact, there's even commanded killing by God, especially when the Israelites took possession of the promised land. I mean, what is up with that? How do you begin to make sense of that? That's a hard question, isn't it? Anybody ever, have you read the Old Testament? Ever, has that question ever come to anybody's mind besides mine? Well, let me just say, first of all, again, I'll say up front, I don't have all the answers to this. And we don't have time to go into all the theological issues behind this and the reasons why. Okay? But here's what I do know, and I know it's a short answer. It doesn't answer every question. But here's what I do know. Notice this in your notes. The God who saves sinners, and that's all of us. And notice how he does it. Through what? The blood, the shed blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. That God is the same God who has and will avenge, listen, his own name and his glory. And he will do so with the taking of of blood. Folks, here's the problem that we have. We want everything to be nice and neat. We will, see, we're gracious, we're grateful that God loves us enough to send his own son to die on the cross, the shedding of blood, where God took the blood of his son as a payment for our sin. We're like, yeah, great God for that. Woo! What a lovely God we have. But then when God also takes blood to avenge his own name and glory, we're like, whoa, I don't like that. Doesn't seem fair to me. Again, I don't have all the answers. All I know is it's the same God. You see, we were created, and again, I think this is the answer, part of the answer lies in the heart of this right here, is we were created with one purpose, and that is to glorify God. And when we cease, when our lives, when we cease to bring glory to God with our lives, then as the creator, God has every right to avenge his name and glory with the taking of of our lives. And that's what you see God doing in the Old Testament. By his grace, he chose out a group of people, the Israelites, the Jews, not because they deserved it, simply because his grace fell upon Abraham. He said, I pick you to bring me glory out of all the peoples of the earth. These peoples over here, they have ceased to bring me glory, and now I'm going to use you to avenge my name and my glory. Did they not have opportunity? Yes. You see people like Rahab, who, who when she was, they were part of the conquest of, of the promised land, she submitted and brought glory to God. And yet she was not one who was part of the chosen. I, I know it does, it's not a full answer, but we don't have time, so let's move on. Here, let me draw one other point here. Think about this. If you have a problem with all the killing in the Old Testament, uh, then you better not read the New Testament. 
You ever thought about that? Have you read the book of Revelation lately? The book of Revelation reveals that there's going to be more killing leading up to Christ's return and during the battle of Armageddon than what we can imagine. Why? Because as the sovereign creator, God will always avenge his name and glory. It's what it's always about. So, are there situations where taking human life then is justified by God? Well, I believe there are. Let me give you four of them. And again, we can't dwell on these for any length of time. Number one, God allows for sanctioning capital punishment. In the Old Testament, the death penalty was ordered for a wide variety of crimes, such as murder, kidnapping, incest, adultery, child sacrifice, and witchcraft. God sanctioned capital punishment in the nation of Israel as a matter of justice. For example, the execution of a murderer stops him from killing again. Literally so. If he has no life, he can't kill again. And also, it, it, it hinders other would-be criminals from doing so. They think twice about it. Genesis 9-6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall, shed, shall his blood be shed. And then God tells us why. For God made man in his own image. You see, this is the biblical logic behind capital punishment. It is precisely because life is so precious, so sacred in the image of God, that someone who takes it unlawfully must be put to death. So God allows for governments to sanction capital punishment and to implement it. Number two, God allows for maintaining law and order. Human government has been ordained by God with the right to use appropriate force, which may at times involve killing to maintain law and order. We see this all the time today. Paul tells us in Romans 13, 4, that governing authorities have the God-given right to use what Paul says is the sword. Notice, I'll read it for you. But if you do wrong, He says, be afraid. For he, that is governing authorities, does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to being punishment on the wrongdoer. The sword here refers to a government's power, which is ordained by God over life and death. This is why law enforcement officials, police officers, is justified in killing a wrongdoer when necessary to maintain law and order. So, God allows, we see, for capital punishment, law and order. Number three, God allows for exercising self-defense. Self-defense is simply the lawful protection of oneself and one's family from a violent attack. God allowed for exercising self-defense for the Israelites within certain guidelines, though. It wasn't just arbitrary. You go to Exodus 22, 2 through 3, and it says, If a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But now here's the parameters. But if it happens after sunrise, he is guilty of bloodshed. That was for the nation of Israel. Today, our government, which is ordained by God, allows us the right to exercise self-defense in our homes within certain guidelines. So, we see this. Another situation where taking life is justified. Number four, God allows for going to war. 
He allows for going to war. When we read the Bible, again, war was part of God's plan for the conquest of the promised land. And war throughout history has been a perpetual necessity as well as a damaging tragedy. War is not ideal. We have war because of the sinfulness and selfishness of man. That's the bottom line. I like how Stephen Carter, who's an author, he writes this. He says, war is horrible and should be fought rarely and only to avoid greater horrors. This view of of war has led to, to countries like ours to the development of what is known as the just war theory, which we can't go into all what that is, but basically it comes down to this. All previous things having been tried, war becomes the only option that will actually save more lives than it takes. So these examples show that not all killing is morally wrong. But why does God permit some forms of killing? I mean, what makes them lawful? Again, the answer is that their goal is not the destruction of life, but it's preservation. And so sometimes it's necessary to take life in order to save life. Lawful killing, though, should never bring anybody joy. We don't don't find happiness in this. Joy in killing any life. Why? Because that person is still made in the image of God. And their soul hasn't been redeemed, or maybe it has. Either case, it's the taking of a life. But by enforcing justice, we maintain law and order and highlight God's concern for justice. Now, let me just briefly go into and explain a little bit three forms of murder violating the Sixth Commandment, as well as as what we would call just, you know, homicide in general. You know, blatant, cold murder. Three other forms of murder. Number one is suicide. Suicide violates the Sixth Commandment. And, of course, suicide, you you could say suicide is self-murder. And, folks, listen to me. Suicide's an epidemic in our country. In the U.S. alone, suicide is the fourth leading cause of death for adults. Fourth leading cause. It's the third leading cause of death for young adults ages 15 to 24. More are killed by suicide than traffic accidents in that age group. It's an epidemic. And in committing suicide, perhaps more than any other act, we defiantly say, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul. Suicide is the ultimate expression of futility, but it's also the ultimate expression of selfishness and rebellion against God. And as Christians, we must remember what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. So God has not given us the right to kill ourselves. To commit suicide is to claim lordship over your own life. And yet, let me just say clearly, suicide is a sin that is as forgivable as any other sin. Now most of us here at different times have felt enough despair. We've been down and discouraged in our lives where perhaps we have thought 
is life really worth living? I would guess that that's probably crossed half of our minds here. And we may think about it just in casual, not really with any intention to act on it. But, you know, we can become very discouraged and despairing. We think, is life really worth living? And the answer is yes. Why? Because, again, we're made in the image of God. And because of that, you matter to God. And there is always hope in Jesus Christ. Always hope. That doesn't mean God's going to take away all your problems. But, folks, there's hope. There is a way out of despair. And so suicide is not the answer. Number two, a second form of murder is euthanasia. Euthanasia. Euthanasia is is the deliberate act of causing the death of someone due to deformity, incurable disease, injury, or even old age. And usually euthanasia is enacted because of inconvenience or because someone thinks that life is not worth living. But God alone is the Lord of life. He alone has the right to determine when it's time for someone to die. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 2.6, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. Now, sadly, we are living in a day and age when the quality of life is much more important than the sanctity of life. And the difficulty is, we now have the medical capacity to keep a body functioning long after its God-appointed time of death. Now, I know this raises many more ethical questions than we can address right here today. And perhaps some of you have already faced some of those ethical questions with your own parents or in other facets or form, whatever the case may be. But fundamentally, although we always have a duty to provide basic nourishment, we do not always have a duty to provide extraordinary measures such as artificial respiration. As Philip Ryken explains in his book, Written in Stone, he says, and I quote, there is a legitimate moral distinction between killing and allowing someone who is terminally ill to die. In other words, there is a difference between terminating life, which is never permissible, and terminating treatment, which can be a way of turning a life, and thus also death, back over to God. But this calls for constant vigilance, because many people, including many healthcare policymakers and health professionals, don't know the difference and thus they often cross the line that should never be crossed. And again, we're not here to answer all the questions on this. But euthanasia violates the Sixth Commandment. Number three, abortion violates the Sixth Commandment. Now, if suicide and euthanasia are an epidemic, then abortion is our national disgrace. Since 1973... Over 53 million babies have been killed through abortion in the United States alone. Author John Powell calls this tragedy the silent holocaust. Most Christians throughout history traditionally have always believed 
that an unborn child is a person made in the image of God. And therefore, to kill such a child by abortion is a violation of God's law in the Sixth Commandment. Now, again, we don't have time. Uh, this issue right here is, is a message in and of itself, so I, I don't have time to go into all the medical issues of why we believe this way, or at least why most Christians do. Let me just give you a couple of quotes here. Dr. Jerome Lejeune, a French professor of genetics, and in fact, he was also the discoverer, or is the discoverer, of the genetic basis for Down syndrome, says, Life has a very, very long history, but each individual has a very neat beginning, the moment of conception. Dr. Bernard Nathanson was once known as the abortion king here in the United States for presiding over 60,000 abortions. He performed his last abortion in 1979. What's interesting is what transpired in 1979 that caused him to quit. The invention of the ultrasound, which showed clear moving pictures of the fetus, convinced them that he had not been removing mounds of tissue, but persons. He writes in his book, The Hand of God, After my exposure to ultrasound, I began to rethink the prenatal phase of life. To disrupt or abort a life at this point is intolerable. It is a crime. He says, I don't make any bones about using that word. Abortion is a crime. This comes from the abortion king himself. Back in 1994, the featured speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. was a small, fragile woman with no political credentials. And yet she stood confidently at the podium somewhat like this, and was surrounded by President Bill Clinton and his wife and other government dignitaries. And with a steady voice of certainty, Mother Teresa declared, I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion. It is a direct war against a child, a direct killing of an innocent child. Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love, but to use any violence to get what they want. By abortion, the mother does not learn to love, but kills even her own child to solve her problems. And by abortion, the father is told that he does not have to take any responsibility at all for the child he has brought into the world. That father is likely to put other women into the same trouble. So abortion just leads to more abortion. Basically, this nun put her finger on the moral problem that our country is in. Abortion does not model fear of God first and foremost, nor does it model any love for humanity, but it teaches a culture to employ violence to get what it wants. Is abortion an unforgivable sin? Absolutely not. God is merciful, and we can receive his forgiveness for this sin just like any other sin. Now, there is no question... As I scan the audience here this morning, that all of us, let me say it, most of us, if not all of us, believe murder is wrong and that the sanctity of life should be protected. But here's the problem. We have applied, you shall not murder to everyone but ourselves. But wait just a minute, you say. I've never killed anyone. 
I've never violated the sixth commandment as we just learned here in Saul. Haven't killed anyone? Don't be so sure about that. Notice point number two here. Because Jesus comes along now in the New Testament and he radicalizes the sixth commandment by forbidding hidden murder. You see, like the rest of God's laws, the sixth commandment is a lot harder to keep than it seems at first. Most people don't think of themselves as murderers. In fact, sometimes even murderers don't consider themselves murderers. Back in 1931, on America's Most Wanted, was Two-Gun Crowley. Two-Gun Crowley was charged with a string of brutal homicides, including a cop killing. That spring, he was finally captured after a fierce gun battle in his girlfriend's apartment. And when police searched him, they found a blood-spattered note that read, and I quote, Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one. One that would do nobody any harm. Listen, Two-Gun Crowley was wrong. His heart was unkind, and he did want to harm somebody. But we're all guilty of the same kind of self-deception. See, we like to think of the Sixth Commandment as one of the few commandments when we look around the room and see them, hey, I haven't broken that one. And we put our chest out and say, yep, I can stand up to that one. At least we haven't murdered anybody in cold blood, but then Jesus comes along. Man, why did he have to come along and say what he said? Because basically in Matthew 5 now, he comes along and says, listen, you're all murderers, you just don't know it yet. So here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Notice this in your notes. Is there murder in my heart? Because Jesus says we're all guilty of hidden homicide with murderous thoughts rooted in our evil hearts. How easy it is to commit what John Calvin called murder of the heart. We're like Clarence Darrow who said, I haven't killed anybody, but I've read a whole lot of obituaries with glee. You see, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes from the fruit of murder, and he goes all the way down to the root of murder. And he says it's our evil heart attitudes. In fact, Jesus shows us two ways we murder without getting a blood a drop on the carpet. A drop of blood, I should say. <laughs> without getting a drop of blood on the carpet. Notice this. Number one, the first way we murder, we murder with an uncontrolled anger. With an uncontrolled anger. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is what? Angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Do you get the drift here, what Jesus is saying? It's, it's that hateful anger is a kind of murder. If murder is the fruit, then anger is the root. And so sometimes we say, if looks could kill. And the whole point Jesus is making here is that sometimes they can, and they do. 
there is almost always something murderous about our anger. It's interesting that Jesus adds this little phrase, with his brother. And we can apply that two ways, our spiritual brothers in Christ, as well as our physical brothers and sisters. And so isn't it true that our anger flares up the most against the people we know the best and love the most? No wonder the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3.15, anyone who hates his brother is what? A murderer. In the context, of course, in which John is writing this, it's interesting, he takes us all the way back to the very first murderer, who is Cain, in the first family there, who hated his brother Abel before he murdered him. So let me ask us some questions. Do you hate anyone right now? Is there somebody that you just don't like, that you hate? Do you have any animosity in your heart towards somebody? Is it a family member? Is it somebody at work? Is it somebody in the neighborhood? You see, if we have hate in our heart, animosity in our heart, then Jesus says, listen, you're guilty of murder in your heart. The second way we murder, though, is with our contemptuous speech. Look what Jesus says in the rest of verse 22. He says again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, Raka, that's an interesting word. It's an insult. So if you want to insult somebody, just go around and call them Raka. It means something like you airhead or you empty head. Today we would say something like you idiot, you moron. You said raka and you fool when you were angry and you wanted to insult that person. It was an attack, these two words, on a person's self-worth and an attack on their character. You see, we think, and especially so much in our culture today, we think these insults that we hurl at people are absolutely no big deal. Everybody's doing it, especially kids and teens. Insults are no big deal. But according to Proverbs 12, 18, look what it says. Reckless words pierce like a sword, which is another way of saying our words Our contemptuous insults can be used as murder weapons. Now listen, let me be blunt here. Because some of you are so good with insults that you ought to be hired by the mafia as professional hitmen. Listen, you are so fast and clean that you can kill two people on the way to the break room and then step right over their corpse on the way back to your desk. We can apply that in our homes as well. And you say, yeah, I haven't shed any blood. No, you you haven't shed any literal blood. But you're a murderer in God's eyes, nonetheless, with your contemptuous speech. Which is simply an outpouring of our hearts. Now, here's the danger. To water this down. And so my plea to us this morning is don't water this down. Jesus' message is clear. We're murderers at heart. 
we're guilty of hidden homicide. The sixth commandment is not just dealing with plunging a knife in somebody's heart. It's dealing with how we treat people. Which is why keeping the sixth commandment means so much more than not murdering anybody. It means, get this, loving our neighbors. And if you're asking, well, who's my neighbor? Then perhaps we should read the Good Samaritan story. Because this is really what the positive side of the Sixth Commandment is all about. So just because I haven't shed someone's blood doesn't mean I'm sitting in the pew innocent this morning. Listen, we kill people all the time with our animosity, with our anger, and our contemptuous speech. So what does all this mean then for us? Listen, folks, here's what it means. We're in big trouble. We are in big trouble here this morning. Because God takes murder in the heart extremely serious. Jesus says such murderous attitudes. Go back to Matthew 5.22, what it says. He says these kind of attitudes will be in danger of the fire of hell. The Bible says in Galatians 5.20 that anyone who is guilty of hatred, discord, fits of rage will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can go over to Revelation 21.8 and there list murderers among those who will be sent into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. So if we commit murder, even if it's only in our hearts, then are we in danger of going to hell? Are we in danger of suffering that kind of judgment? And folks, listen to me. The answer is yes. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus Christ. Can we, as murderers, be saved? Whether you've killed somebody physically or through our speech and anger, we're all murderers. You have to understand, Jesus doesn't separate it. They're all lumped up into the same boat. The person on death row because of murder or the person sitting on the pew because of their speech is in the same boat. So can a murderer be saved? Can a murderous heart be washed clean? And of course the answer is all sin is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Just consider these three people in the Bible. Moses, who these commandments were given to. Do you know what he did before he got the commandments? Oh, he only killed an Egyptian and then ran and hid from it. King David. We know the story of David. He committed adultery, which we'll look at next Sunday. And then to cover up his sin of adultery, he had Bathsheba's wife, Uriah the Hittite, killed. So he's guilty of murder. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the books in the New Testament, was a killer of Christians and one who stood by giving approval while Stephen was stoned to death. All three were murderers in God's eyes. And all three found forgiveness from God. That gives me hope. That means so can I. Here's a wonderful verse for murderers to consider. 1 John 1, 7 says, The blood... Now, aren't you thankful for the blood? 
The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Does that include murder with a gun? Absolutely. Does that include murder by abortion? Absolutely. Does that include murder with animosity and anger towards an individual? You bet it does. Does that include murder with our contemptuous insults? Yes. Listen, if you're here this morning and you have murder in your heart, then there is hope for you in the cross of Jesus Christ. If you are prone to get angry, if there is someone you secretly resent, if you have hurled insults at someone, and if there is murder in your heart, then there is only one thing left for you to do. That is to face your sin and repent. To admit your guilt before God and to receive his forgiveness and to save a life, your own life, by trusting in him. And then, after that, to go and make it right with the person you've murdered. See, here's the problem. If we're murderers, that means we've murdered somebody. You understand what I'm saying? There's a life that's been damaged. And while none of us have taken a life literally here, that I, at least that I know of, we have taken life through murder in our heart. And while we are anxious to receive the grace of God and his forgiveness of his shed blood son, listen, Jesus doesn't stop at verse 22 in Matthew 5. He goes on in verses 23 and 24, and he says, if you're worshiping, and you know that there's a problem with somebody else who you've murdered, or they have murdered you, he says, stop and go and make it right. And so if you've got animosity in your heart, if you've murdered somebody, even in this room or a family member, yes, run to the cross of Jesus Christ. But then, Jesus says, get your rear over to the person and make it right with them. Because you've murdered them. Go. Because God went for you. His son. His blood was shed for you. And so now God commands us to receive his forgiveness so that we can now offer it to the person we have animosity against. We've hurled insults too. Go and make it right. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. And while we perhaps have come to the sixth commandment thinking, oh, I'm, I'm safe here. I haven't killed anybody. Lord, we all know we are murderers at heart. And Lord, perhaps there are some here who have animosity in their hearts, anger. They've used their speech to hurt people. And so, Lord, help us to be convicted by your word, especially the words of Christ here in Matthew 5. Help us to make things right as much as it is possible by your grace and with our actions. 
So Lord, let your spirit go and work in our hearts even now. Kurt's going to sing one song. One song. I know we're over a few minutes here, but one song. And while he sings, let me encourage you to seek out God's grace for your own self. Seek out his grace to go and make it right.